Thanks for listening to this audio podcast from Crossgate Church in Hot Springs, Arkansas. We invite you to visit us at crossgate.org. It is our hope that you will hear from God and draw closer to Him through this service. You know, at Crossgate Church, uh, we have what we call a high view of the Scripture. Uh, That basically means that we take very seriously what the Bible says and how we apply it to our lives. Uh, When we say, what does the Bible say? That's not just a cute sound bite. That's that's how we live our lives at Crossgate Church. And when we ask the question, what does the Bible say about divorce and remarriage? I will tell you, as your pastor, it is my passionate heartbeat to speak the truth in love. I can do nothing less, and I will do nothing more than that. Uh, You know, it's interesting. Last week, we talked about revival. And did God not take us to the mountaintop last Sunday? Listen, I mean, based on my own experience and the feedback that so many of you have given me, God absolutely took us to the mountaintop last week. And yet, life happens in the valley. How many of you know that? Life happens in the valley. You, You can't live on the mountaintop. God takes us to the mountaintop that he might propel us to a deeper reality and relationship with him in order to live our lives day by day in the valley. You know, when it comes to the campuses, college campuses, when it comes to churches and other places that are experiencing revival, my soul is so stirred. But here's one other place where I pray that God shows up in revival, and that's in your home and mine, in in marriage. Because, listen to me, church, it is still true that the greatest witness for Jesus Christ in this world today is a marriage and a home filled with stability, the joy of the Lord, and peace. Isn't that what we all want for our families? So we're going to get into that message today. What does the Bible say about divorce and remarriage? And let's remind ourselves just a bit about the realities of marriage for a moment. Two weeks ago, we jumped into Genesis chapter 2. What does the Bible say about marriage? And we specifically talked about three things uh, based on Genesis 2 and then how Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul read Genesis 2. First of all, and I'll just recap real quick for you. First of all, we said that God designed marriage specifically, right? We saw in the book of Genesis, God designed marriage between one man and one woman in a relationship that should have priority over all other earthly relationships. And we saw God's heart for the permanence of marriage in Genesis chapter 2. Then we saw Jesus affirm marriage scripturally, right? We saw an episode in Matthew chapter 19 where uh, some Pharisees came to Jesus. They started poking and prodding Jesus and uh, trying to call him out on some some marital issues. And, And Jesus simply responded by saying, what does the Bible say? And we saw Jesus turning their attention back again to Genesis chapter 2 and the permanence, God's heart for the permanence of marriage. And then we saw Paul the Apostle. The Apostle Paul explained marriage spiritually from Ephesians chapter 5, but he simply quoted Genesis 2 and he said, I'm speaking about a mystery that God has revealed to me, and that is that marriage between a man and a woman is supposed to be a picture of Christ and the church, the unshakable, unbreakable relationship between Jesus and the church is supposed to be illustrated in, in marriage. Again, God's heart for the permanence 
of marriage. All that to simply say that God's design is for keeps. It's for keeps, right? And yet, if you don't mind me stating the obvious, Genesis 2 is followed by Genesis 3, right? I mean, I'm a smart man, you know what I mean? Genesis 2 is followed by Genesis 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, the perfect environment of Eden and the magnificence of the first marriage between Adam and Eve was absolutely wrecked by sin and wickedness. So that every marriage going forward would consist of one sinner married to another sinner within the broader cosmic context warped by sin. It's as if when you step into the batter's box of marriage, you've already got two strikes against you. that's, That's what we're facing. I mean, I can't think of a more uh, just explicit description of the situation than Jeremiah 17.9. Look at this. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's what you're married to. And by the way, that's what your spouse is married to, right? That's, that's where we're at. Because God's people are not immune from this, right? God's people are not immune. As a matter of fact, as time went by, God's leader named Moses... Because of this this battle, this tension, this friction, and all the rest, made a provision for something that was never intended from the beginning, divorce. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, says this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and then he goes on with some other things, but that's, that's the gist of where we're going here. This provision for divorce based on and some indecency doesn't define what indecency means, just simply says indecency. Uh, but I will tell you that even, even though there was a provision made, God's heart on the matter never changed. God's heart is for permanence. God's heart is for the marriage relationship. That's why God says in Malachi chapter 2, verse 15, I hate divorce. And as a, as a, as a son of, of parents who were divorced, let me say, so do I. Not, not that I'm, I mean, God doesn't say I hate divorced people or people who have been through divorce. He, he simply says I hate the, the concept of separation in marriage. Now, by the first century, when Jesus lived and, and, and ministered and died, uh, in the Jewish culture, divorce was rampant and, and, and basically happened for almost any reason. And that reality continues to this day, unfortunately. The video only illustrated things that we already know about the world in which we live. Those are some of the realities of marriage, but let's go ahead and start asking the practical questions. What does the Bible say about divorce. And I'm going to direct your attention to two key passages in the Bible, first of which is Matthew 19 and then 1 Corinthians 7. So if you have a Bible, find Matthew chapter 19. We hit on this passage briefly two weeks ago, but we're going to see it in its entirety now. Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9. Listen to this. Some Pharisees came to Jesus and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read 
that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed, didn't command it, he allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So understand the context in which Jesus is speaking here, okay? Because in, in the, the ancient Jewish commentary on the Old Testament called the Mishnah, we see a, a, a picture of, of two prevailing schools of thought about divorce in the first century. Look, look at this. This is, this is straight from the Jewish Mishnah, okay? The school of Shammai, he was one of the leading rabbis of that day. The school of Shammai says a man may not divorce his wife unless he has found sexual infidelity in her for it is written because he has found in her indecency in anything. In other words, he's interpreting indecency in a very narrow way. But the school of Hillel, another one of the key rabbis, says he may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him, meaning he, he, she burned dinner or, or dinner was not good or whatever. I mean, a very liberal interpretation of indecency, for it is written because he has found in her indecency in anything. Similarly, Rabbi Akiba, who sided with Hillel, says, even if he found another fairer than she, for it is written, and it shall be if she find no favor in his eyes. I mean, that's some pretty amazing uh, liberty taken with this, this whole idea of indecency and all the rest. But isn't that where we're living today? I mean, isn't that exactly where we are today in our nation? But back in the first century, there were these two prevailing schools of thought, and Jesus quickly spoke back into that, into that context, and into the Pharisees' question, first of all, by simply turning their hearts back to Genesis chapter 2 and saying, in God's heart, marriage is permanent. God has a heart for the permanence of marriage. Then he gave a correction. He said, actually, Moses, guys, if you read your Bibles, Moses did not command that anyone should divorce, but he made a provision. He, he allowed it. And then in verse 9, look at verse 9. Jesus makes an exception. It, it's traditionally called the exception clause, and it has been one of the more controversial things that Jesus has ever said, where he basically says, unless there, there is a, a, a case of sexual infidelity, of sexual immorality, adultery, depending on what your translation has, you know, there, there is no provision for divorce. Right? Now understand that the word that, that is behind sexual immorality or adultery uh, in your translation, whatever it may be, is the Greek word pornia. It's the word from which we get pornography and pornographic and, 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 and those types of things. Uh, someone has, has well said that in the first century that word really was kind of a junk drawer in which all kinds of, of, of immoral and aberrant sexual activity was thrown. Uh, Mar premarital sex, sex before marriage, uh, adultery between married people, homosexual sex, bestiality, I mean just incest, you name it, and all in all, it, it was all just kind of thrown up under this, this, uh, this, this sexual immorality umbrella. And so Jesus clearly is, is siding in a sense with this, the school of Shammai, Rabbi Shammai. 
Shammai, who said, except for sexual immorality, there is no grounds for divorce. Right? Now, I will tell you that, that, again, I said that's a controversial statement because there's a lot of good, solid, Bible-believing, God-loving people who don't believe that Jesus, in terms of giving that concession, made a concession even for adultery. There, there's, there's a lot of Christian people who say, you know what, we, we don't believe that, that's, that that was the intent of what Jesus was saying, and therefore, even when sexual immorality takes place, God is not making any type of provision for divorce. That's not necessarily my conviction, uh, but, but I will tell you that I, I, I fully respect convictions that, that, that side other, otherwise than my own. Even among the elders, our elders at Crossgate Church, we do not have 100% agreement on, 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 on the, the specific interpretation of verse 9, and that's okay. But here's what we absolutely agree on, and I think we can all agree on. First of all, God never commands anyone to get a divorce. And second of all, even in the painful circumstances of sexual immorality between a husband and a wife and, and infidelity, God's heart is still, if, if at all possible, for reconciliation and, 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 and the endurance of that marriage. Okay, so that's, that's Matthew chapter 19. How about 1 Corinthians 7? 1 Corinthians 7, if, if you want to know what the Bible has to say to married people and single people alike, you really ought to have a well-worn path to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7 talks about several different uh, elements dealing with marriage, but then, but then Paul the Apostle specifically addresses the situation where you have a saved Christian married to an unsaved lost person, whether it's a saved man married to a lost woman or, or a saved woman married to a lost man. What do we do about that? Okay, let's see what Paul the Apostle had to say. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. That doesn't mean that he's saved just because he's, he's riding her spiritual coattails, okay? But it means that there's an influence. There, there's, there, there's a redemptive influence on that, on that man, that lost man. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. In other words, children coming up under at least one saved parent are receiving some redemptive influence that they wouldn't otherwise receive. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Strong language. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Okay, so again, you've got a lost husband or wife married to a saved husband or wife. Obviously, Paul's first line of encouragement is to stay in the marriage because of the redemptive influence that the saved spouse can have on the unsaved spouse. You have no idea what God's going to do through, through your quiet testimony, your, your witness, your love, and, 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 and faithfulness and consistency to God. You have no idea what God's going to do in the life of that lost man or woman, so stay with it. Stay with it. But there might be a circumstance 
where because of your convictions, not nagging, not, not, not banging over the head with a Bible or anything, but just convictions, faithfulness, and all the rest, where that unbelieving spouse finally says, I'm tired of being married to a Jesus freak. I'm tired of being married to this religious fanatic. Get him out of here. Get her out of here. I'm gone. And they, they leave. Now, now, we're not talking about, you know, a... a a heated conversation that leads to a walking out and slamming of the door and going for a stroll to, to compose yourself, okay? We're not taught, that's not desertion. I mean, you've been there. I've been there. You say, Pastor Phil, you've been there? Yes, over the last 23 years, I have been there, okay? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about where that, where that unsaved spouse takes off and in some cases, they're never heard from again. That'll wake you up. So the, the Apostle Paul is basically saying that in, in those cases, okay, that brother or sister, again, his language, not mine, is not enslaved. What does that mean? Okay. Again, among, among Bible-believing, God-loving people, there is some divergence of, of opinions and convictions on that. My conviction personally is that they are no longer bound to that marriage. That is strong, strong language coming from the apostle. They are no longer bound to that marriage. They, they are no longer in a, 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 a bound relationship with that, with that lost person. Okay? But again, not, not, not all Christians understand that, that statement to, to be a, a, a freedom from that, from that relationship. Again, even among our elders at Crossgate Church, we do not have 100% agreement on, on the, the interpretation of that verse 15. And that, that's okay. That's okay. Um, but, but, but the fact is that there, there is some strong language in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, that talks about what happens when that unbeliever deserts and, and leaves. Now, in summation, what can we say about the Bible in terms of what it says about divorce well first of all again it the the bible and god never commands divorce never never commands divorce um and and in 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 the conviction of many it does provide some some very limited and rare provisions for legitimate divorce um, in in the scripture however as we've said many times already god's heart god's heart is always for the permanence of marriage and in the case of a, of, 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 a, of a potential failure of marriage, God is always, always longing to see reconciliation. Always. Always. That's what the Bible says about divorce. Now what about remarriage? That's always a, a great question, isn't it? And in many cases, a follow-on question. What does the Bible say about remarriage? Well, I think we can answer that uh, relatively quickly. Uh, three, three things I would say, one, two, three. First of all, certainly in the case of the death of a spouse. I, I think that goes without saying, but you know what? I always like to give chapter and verse, okay? Here you go. 1 Corinthians 7, again, great passage on marriage, verse 39. If a wife is bound to her husband, as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Okay, so again, there, there, there's freedom to remarry, but... This, the same expectation of any follower of Jesus, you're only going to marry another Christian. And, and just as an aside, let me tell you something. Whether, whether, whether you've never been married or you've been married and now you're not married, you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have no business 
dating or marrying a lost person. Can I say it any more emphatically than that? Teenagers, students, you have no business dating a lost man, a boy or girl. No business whatsoever. Parents, if you allow your teenager to date a lost student, you're part of the problem. I, I shared this with a, a, a member of our church when I first came here. We were eating lunch. His daughter was, was dating a lost man. He said he's lost. I said, I, I want to strongly encourage you to step into that relationship. They left the church. He wasn't happy with that advice that I gave him, not from Phil Kramer, but from the Word of God. Listen, I could go a long time on this, and, and I, I, I'm, I'm reining myself back in. But folks, I will tell you, you have no business poten even potentially becoming yoked with a lost person. And that's not Phil Kramer. That's the Word of God. All right? So, death of a spouse. I'm reining myself in, reining myself in, okay? Second, an unrepentant, sexually immoral spouse. Again, my conviction, as well as the conviction of many, if, if there's been a divorce based on uh, clear sexual immorality, uh, active sexual immorality, then there is a freedom to remarry. And, and, and lastly, of course, a total uh, desertion by an unbelieving spouse. Total desertion by an unbelieving spouse. Uh, again, Paul's language in, in 1 Corinthians 7.15, such a brother or sister who's experienced that is not enslaved. And, and I, along with many, believe that there is a freedom to remarry. Okay? What, what does the Bible say? And I know, okay, because we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about the, the what-ifs and the yeah-buts and, and the what-abouts. Okay? Because as, as, as we talk about this, we're, we're, we're naturally going to be bringing back questions about divorce and remarriage. And I, let's face it, I, there's no way that, that I can answer all of those questions in the next few minutes, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit four, just four very practical ones, but there's no way that I have time to hit them all, all right? And so this is where I would strongly encourage you to seek biblical counsel. If you have a question that falls outside of the, the ones that I'm going to answer in the next few minutes, then by all means, talk to a life group leader, talk to a pastor, talk to an elder, one of our leaders at the church who would be more than happy to help, help you to come to a better understanding of what the Bible has to say about the situation that, that you are in, okay? Uh, so, so here's the first one, just very practical. First one is this, all right, my spouse is hopelessly addicted to pornography. Is that grounds for divorce according to Jesus' statement about sexual immorality in Matthew 19, 9? All too common problem today, especially with the accessibility of pornography, digitally, on the, on, on the computers and devices, it's just, our, our culture is absolutely flooded with pornography. My heart goes out to anyone, man or woman, who's married to a spouse who has become hopelessly addicted uh, to pornography. Uh, we used to consider this primarily a, a men's issue, but, but there is an alarming increase in the number of women who have become addicted to pornography over the last few decades, right? So again, what does the Bible say? And I know one of the reasons why people bring this up is because of this scripture. Look in Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. 
But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with, with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And of course, the argument goes that, well, if my husband is, is lusting after all these women in this pornography, then, I mean, he's already committed it anyway, so therefore, Matthew 19, 9 applies to me, and I can walk, right? Well, be careful when you, when you jump to that conclusion, because in the same chapter, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is, is arguing from analogy here. Matthew chapter 5, 21, 22, he, he applies the same principle to murder. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, is Jesus saying that thoughts bring about the exact same consequences as actions? No, he's, he's not saying that. that. Yes, thinking something is bad. It's really, really bad. But the consequences that follow are not the same thing as actually carrying it out, right? Just because you're thinking about uh, hating someone doesn't mean that you're going to be subject to the death penalty, right, in, in, the, in, in the courts of, of those days. Same thing, if, if, if you have immoral thoughts about someone, that the, the consequences are not the same as if you actually carried it out. No, Jesus is saying that God will hold you responsible for your thoughts, just like he holds you responsible for your actions. Jesus said it's an issue of the heart. So I personally do not believe that, that a spouse who's hopelessly addicted to pornography automatically brings you up under whatever Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19 verses 9. You say, well, Pastor Phil, if that's the case, then what's my recourse? I mean, if, if I'm married to this, this man or this woman who's addicted, what, what are my next steps? Okay. This is where it is critically important to be a part of biblical community. Critically important to be a part of biblical community within a local church and even better within a life group. Here's why. Because God has given us a, a plan of recourse in the Bible. Matthew chapter 18, many of you are familiar with this passage. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother, or in the case of marriage, a husband or a wife. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. There's, there's, a, there's a, a, a flow chart of recourse here. You, you approach your spouse. You say, this is, this is wrong. This pornography is wrong. It is wrecking our relationship and what it's doing to me as well. You need to stop that. Blows you off? Bring some people from your life group. En engage some other people from your church. Godly people to confront your husband or your wife on this matter. If they still blow you off, engage with a pastor, an elder, bringing, bringing them into the conversation. The challenge in so many cases is a husband or a wife is oftentimes facing fear and intimidation and apprehension for, for, for taking it and escalating to the next level. But if we don't do that, we're just simply facilitating someone else's foolishness and certainly not taking advantage of the biblical community that God has given us. Second question, big question in our culture today. What if I'm in a physically, verbally, or psychologically abusive marriage? What do I do? Again, whether you're a man or a woman, what, what are my next steps, Pastor Phil? Well, again, my, my heart absolutely goes out to someone who is in a situation like this that totally and completely requires intervention. 
Okay? In, in the case of physical abuse, absolutely. Intervention from church leaders, and I might add law enforcement, absolutely. That's exactly what needs to happen. And, and the, the days of churches saying, well, we'll just kind of take care of this guy off to the side, those days are over. And I praise God they never existed here. Those, that, that is not biblical, that is not loving, that is not the compassionate answer. Okay? In addition to the engagement from, from church leaders and law enforcement, cases of physical abuse need compassionate and intentional victim care. Coming alongside someone who's been the victim of abuse and helping them to be restored even for their own sake, if not for the sake of their marriage. In cases of, of verbal and, and psychological abuse, again, in, intentional engagement along the lines of Matthew chapter 18, something we talked about in the case of pornography, very, uh, very similar. But again, especially in these types of abusive cases, it's so easy for a spouse to be overwhelmed by fear and intimidation and apprehension that, that, that they're, 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 they're scared to take that, even that first step of engaging someone outside of their relationship. And that, that's where I would plead with the husband or the wife of the victim, the, the, the victim to say, please don't let this, this take you beyond your breaking point before you speak to someone about this, before you speak to someone in your church, one of your church leaders or, or others, to, to get them involved in the process of, of correction and, and God willing re reconciliation. Third question. Let's talk about the remarriage question. I am divorced and single. What are my options at this point? I'm divorced and single. What, what are my options at this point? Well, let me just, let, let me ask you to consider a couple of things before you begin to look for another relationship, okay? Just let me, let me ask you to consider a couple of things. First of all, an honest question from your pastor would be this. Do you feel like you've honestly processed through the pain, the heartache, just some of the, the, the things that happened when, when your previous marriage dissolved? I mean, do, do you feel like you've, whether it was 10 months ago or 10 years ago, do you feel like you've truly worked through those things spiritually and in a healthy way? Uh, because I, I think we all know this. I'm, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. In many cases, the, the temptation is, now that this marriage is over, I'm going to go find somebody else without truly addressing the, the, the heart issues that go along with the pain and all the rest of, of, of going through this, this disillusion of a marriage, this divorce over here. Uh, that, that's, that's one of the reasons why I am increasingly impressed with our regeneration ministry on Wednesday nights. Regen is a, is a year-long discipleship process that we started about a year ago here at Crossgate. And, uh, and, and at any given time, anyone who wants to jump on board with Regen can, can start in that process on any given Wednesday night from 6.30 to 8 o'clock. I am increasingly impressed with regeneration because no matter who you are, no matter what, what's taken place in your past, listen, we all have something we need to deal with, all right? Just get honest with yourself, you, honest with God, we all have something we need to deal with, and Regen puts us in a healthy context with other believers, other folks, where we can work through some of those things. Okay, so the first question I would have to you and the first thing to consider is this. Have you truly processed through, I mean honestly, the stuff related to that, that previous marriage? Okay, second, second is this. Again, very honest question, dead serious. Have you explored, you know, especially on the, on the backside of getting healthy, just, just taking your life to a healthier place, 
Have you honestly explored the avenues for reconciliation with your former spouse? Uh, in, in, seriously. In some cases, it would be impossible because maybe they've gone on and they've remarried or they're completely, they've just completely left and you don't even know where they are. Uh, or, or there's just there's too much damage and all the rest. But I will tell you, God's heart is for reconciliation. And if God's heart is for reconciliation, and, and, and all things are possible with God, we've got to at least be open to the idea that perhaps God is going to make a way to be reconciled to our former spouse. Here, here's, here's the third thing. The third thing is this. I would strongly encourage you, if, if you're divorced and now you're single, I, I, w- I would strongly encourage you to go all in on biblical community. All in on biblical community, life group, connecting, getting, getting multiple sets of eyes on your life, especially if you begin to, to lean into a relationship with someone. Multiple sets of godly eyes and ears on, on, your, on your steps. It, it's, it's critical that anyone has that, but especially someone who's, who's, who's looking into a, another relationship. And then lastly, I would say, if you are leaning into another relationship, be careful to honor God in that relationship. Sexual purity, not, not drifting into premarital sex or sexual immorality of any kind, and certainly not moving in with someone. That's become kind of the vogue thing today, is just, I'm going to move in with this person. That's, that does not honor God. And it certainly will not set you up for the kind of marriage that God wants you to have. Okay? It just, trust me when I tell you, it will not set you up for the kind of marriage that God wants you to, to have. Okay? Now, here's, here's the last thing, okay? The, the last question is this. I went through a divorce for reasons other than what you mentioned, meaning sexual immorality or desertion by an unbeliever, and now I'm remarried to someone else. Am I in an unbiblical marriage? I mean, because if someone was to just read the, you know, just take these things to their, their conclusions, you might say, well, well, Pastor Phil, are, are you saying that I'm in an unbiblical marriage? Okay, so, so first of all, um, let, me, let me simply say that I am so blessed to be a part of a church that's known for the grace of God. We've got a number of people in our church who have been divorced, previously married, and now they're, now they're remarried to someone else, a blended family and so forth. You know, there's a lot of churches out there, folks, and some of you have come out of those churches where someone who is divorced and then remarried would be considered a second-class Christian. Can I tell you that I just think that's the, the, the biggest piece of garbage in the world? I would just, if, if, if I had a sheet of paper that said sec, second-class Christian, I would wad it up right now and throw it over my shoulder because that's not God's heart. And certainly that's not our heart at Crossgate Church. But you say, yeah, but I mean, would you say that I'm in an unbiblical marriage? All right, let me ask you a question. Are you one man married to one woman? Yes. Are you one one woman married to one man? Yes. Well, guess what? You're in a biblical marriage. All right? You you are right now, if if you're a man married to a woman or a woman married to a man, you are right now in a biblical marriage. Now, the steps that you took that, that got you to that point might not have been biblically ideal. Let's just be honest, okay? But how many of you know, and I'm going to put this up on the screen, how many of you know that God is more interested in your future than he is in your past? How many of you know that? How many, yes, amen. Lift your hand if you know that to be true. God is more interested in your future than he is in your past. What is the point of digging back into someone's history and throwing them up in their face constantly over and over again? Sure, we want to we shepherd people in the right, healthy direction toward, toward God's future. 
But at the end of the day, if you're married here today, if, right now, if you are married, let me, regardless of what your past is, let me give you a few things to think about, okay? First of which is this. Be absolutely certain to build your home and your life on the solid rock of Jesus Christ and the Word of God. Be absolutely certain to do that. Second of all, be absolutely certain to cultivate an others-centered, selfless love for your spouse. Because, listen, selfishness is the number one relationship killer. Selfishness is the number one relationship killer. And so to say, Jesus, I'm going to die to self, and I'm going I'm to love my wife, love, love my husband, even more than I love myself, that's a recipe for marital success. And then third of all, again, go all in with biblical community. If you're not a part of a life group, if you just kind of stroll in here and worship and then just leave, I'm grateful you're here, but, but you are missing out on, on the opportunity to be engaged with other Jesus-following people who will encourage you and pour into you and challenge you with what God says, speaking the truth in love. And lastly, be ready to put in the work. Because the truth of the matter is, folks, that in a post-Genesis 3 world, and that's the world in which we live today, a post-Genesis 3 world, even the best of marriages, listen, even the best of marriages is like a swimming pool that requires constant maintenance and infusion of chemicals to stave off the effects of stagnant water, algae, and bacteria. And I guarantee you, you step into anybody's backyard who has a crystal clear swimming pool, and I'll show you someone who's put in the work. Last week, we talked about revival. I'm so grateful for the, for the fullness of the Holy Spirit in my life. But I'll tell you what, I'm very grateful for the fullness of the Holy Spirit in my marriage as well. And my dear wife prayed for me early this morning that I'd be filled with the Holy Spirit as, as, I, as I shared this message with you today. And I will tell you, the same God whose overwhelming, powerful presence rested on Hughes Auditorium at Asbury University over the last few weeks also wants to rest over your marriage and over your home and over your hearts if you simply yield to Him and say, God, I'm tired of trying to do this on my own. I'm, 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 I'm tired of trying to, to, to run my marriage my way. God, we give it over to you. We give it over to you. I guess if anything, if, if, we, if we boil it all down to, to just one statement, what does the Bible say about marriage, divorce, and remarriage? Give it over to Jesus. Give it over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We invite you to join us in person at our campus located at 3100 East Grand Avenue in Hot Springs, Arkansas. If we can pray for you, send us an email at prayer at crossgate.org. Thanks again for listening to our audio podcast.